0: Life Before Medicine begins right now. We have a very, very special guest today. This is a story of resilience. And I'm not exactly sure where this is going to go. But I think we're all going to find out together. Today's guest is Marcus. This is a young man I met just a couple of weeks ago at a conference we were attending in Las Vegas. He inspired me. I know he's going to inspire you as well. So sit back. Life Before Medicine begins right now. Marcus, welcome. I'm so glad that you joined us today. Um, Thank you
1: for having me. Thank you for having me. It's
0: an absolute pleasure. It's an absolute pleasure. It's been a couple of weeks since you and I talked to each other, but it seems like yesterday, I don't know about you, but my life in the last two weeks has been a whirlwind. We're moving from northern nevada down to scottsdale arizona and i guess i've just forgotten how unpleasant it is to move i am i am well convinced i'm either going to die in this house because <laughs> i'm never going to move again or if i do move then whoever buys this house has to keep all my crap because uh it's just it's just too much man it's not like moving. Especially in the heat. Yeah, and when you're, I'm 56 years old, and it's not like being 26, turns out, that um, it, it just has been uh, quite a, a physical challenge, you know, and, sure. um, and speaking of physical challenges, um, you're going to tell us a story today. To, uh, story you told me a couple of weeks ago and um we're going to uh, allow this particular podcast to direct itself um and so why don't you begin from the beginning i think that r- resulted when uh, several years ago or, or the beginning of your story started with a back injury isn't that right yes sir
1: um at 12 years old well 11 years old um I was playing football in middle school. And um, one day I got hit pretty brutally. And um, I can honestly say that that day, what I didn't know that that day would change my life for what seemed to be like for forever, but that day changed my life. Um, I got hit um, maybe back in September of that year. And we didn't find out that I was, yeah, we didn't find out that how actually how injured I was until February of that year. So I went basically five, six months unknowingly still playing sports, still playing football. I played a whole basketball season. I did a whole track season. And I would just complain about my knees hurting constantly. And, um, so one day I finally got a doctor's appointment and, um, ironically, um, this doctor is still my doctor to this day. Um, I actually just had a knee surgery about, um, two months ago and he performed it. But, um, he was asking me, um, he he did an MRI on my knees and he was like, "I, I can't find anything wrong with your knees. Um, and but he did he believed that i was in pain because i'm not really the type of kid to complain so he was like have you ever had any back pain and when he said that i just like laughed and i was like my back hurts constantly like my back is always hurting
0: and you are 11 years old at this time
1: at the time i'm 11 years old and uh, so probably 2 days later he gets me back in for an mri on my lumbar and, um, that's when he finds, um, that my, basically he diagnoses me with spondylolisthesis and, or spondotheliosis. And, um, but that's basically where like my spine was 55%, um, disconnected. So like it, it had slipped about 55% at the time and, um, by the time I actually went into surgery, it had got to like 65%. And, um, I don't know if people know about percentages, but like, um, basically he was telling me like, you need to stop. Cause so I was resilience, as you say, at the beginning, um, I was young and now I can say probably dumb, but, um, and you're 24 I so, now. I was so resilient that I was I I continued to play sports even after I knew about the back injury. I played a whole um AAU which is summer league basketball. I played a whole season, traveled the world. And um I came back and uh I had surgery on August 1st of 2012 and I had, I was 12 No, I was still 11 and I was going to be turning 12 that same, that same month of August. And, um, so I had the surgery, everything went good. I had a spinal fusion, um, at age 12,
0: a spinal fusion.
1: Yes, sir. Um, (laughs) rehab went well, or so we thought I was, um, seven months into rehab when, um, they allowed me to go back to school. Um, because this basically this whole time that I had this back surgery, I was removed from my real life. but that is a story to be told because that year, going from seventh grade to eighth grade, um, I would I would have been taking all advanced high school classes, but because they had put me on homebound and they were sending a teacher out to my house, basically the, like the school system said to me like, you're not going to be able to keep up with where you're supposed to be at. So we're just going to put you basically where you were last year. Yeah. So instead of me progressing that year or learning really much of anything, I've basically done the same thing i done my seventh grade year. Oh, so, um,
0: so you basically repeated the year. Now let, let me just ask grade, you a quick question between the time that you were diagnosed and the time you had surgery you continued to play sports. What, what was going on with your parents? Did they know what was going on? Did they think maybe you shouldn't be doing this? Or what was that interaction like?
1: So my, my mom, she actually has broke her back before. Um, so for her, uh, when she found out that my back was hurt to any extent, she didn't care about me ever playing sports again. And uh, my mom, she's an assistant superintendent. So um, education for her comes first, always. Um, That is her main focus. That's her main priority. So helping kids and education, those those are her two passions. So when she found out I was hurt, it was instantly like, you need to stop playing sports. You need to stop running. You need to stop working out. You need to sit down, literally. And my dad, on the other hand, was more so like, are you? Does it hurt too much to play? Oh, I can see. you push through it? Okay. Then, then push through it, and even coaches were pretty much the same attitude as him. Which, like, um, it's crazy now because as I as I'm older and I'm more mature, I realize like four years of high school football or two years of middle school football or even a lifetime of sports is not worth your health no. and and as a kid it's very hard to comprehend that especially when sports are basically like your livelihood so for me i was i i was also very good at sports so for me like Sports was my way out, I guess, so to speak. Um, That was my way to a free education. That was my way to free housing. That was my way to everything that I wanted out of life came through playing a sport. And you and and
0: your father thought you were going to play professional sports someday.
1: Yes. Um, So that, um, that summer that I decided to continue to play. My dad basically told me, you know, well, he didn't he didn't tell me to push through it, but he definitely supported me pushing through it. Um, but that summer, I actually ended up being selected for AAU top 100 players in my grade. Mm. And I didn't even get to go out to Vegas and play the game because I was having surgery on August 1st while my peers were playing in a All-Star game on August 1st. So that summer, I actually done really good, but, um, health wise, I was only getting worse and the pain was only getting worse, but that, that's, that kind of leads to, um, that kind of leads to where my life started to lead to though, because pain became such a, a choice for me more so than like, something that I had to accept I like began to kind of um I began to kind of normalize this pain very very young and very early so for me my pain threshold became crazy so even when I was in the most excruciating pain my body may know it but my brain doesn't so that kind of led to everything else um so at um 13 years old, I, um, no, at 12 years old, actually, I'm still, um, am I, I'm rehabbing for seven months and then I go, I'm going to physical therapy and I'm going to a place called D1, which is a training facility for athletes. And, uh, I leave physical, luckily, like, thank God. And, and that's another thing I want to say about my parents too, is my parents are very, very much God-fearing people. And, they had faith. So for them also, it was more so like walk by faith and not by sight because like they didn't want me living in fear. They didn't want me thinking like, Oh, if I do this, I, I can never walk again. Or if I do this, so they didn't want me really having a negative connotation towards my injury. So that was also why they didn't completely make me stop playing sports. It was more so of a mental thing for, for me. So, um, and, I'm, I'm at D one training and luckily my physical therapist and my training facility were in the same building, just in different parts. And, um, my trainer, he looks at my back and he's like, man, uh, I don't think you're okay. We need to go see your physical, uh, your uh, physical therapist. So we, he walks me back over there and she immediately like, she kind of freaks out. She calls my doctor, my surgeon, Um, and they get me, they take me from an ambulance straight from physical therapy to Vanderbilt, which is about an hour away from Bowling Green in Nashville, Tennessee, which is where I've had all my surgeries performed. Um, they rush me there. I have an emergency surgery that night where they remove all the hardware. Um, I'm supposed to be going for another surgery that next day but during the process of that second surgery which is technically my third spine surgery they um ripped my nerve cavity in my spine and so i woke up which as a 12 year old uh i don't, I don't even think i really have to describe like say much about it but i woke up with um my wrist like strapped down to the bed and then like my legs strapped down to the bed but it wasn't it was so I did not move because any quick movement, anything could like mean that like it it was damaged forever. So um, they were basically just trying to get it to fuse itself back together. So I went two weeks without having mm-hmm. another surgery, but I went like two de like probably, tw- I think it was in all 28 hours where I was like laying in one spot and I could not move, but you have to understand that I like woke up, from anesthesia to that. So that was a very, very traumatizing thing and traumatizing day for me. And um, about two weeks later, they performed the final third surgery where they um, basically cleaned me out, took out everything that they had put in um, as far as like tubing goes and uh, for drainage because I my back had got severely infected due to the metal that they had used. I was allergic to the metal that they had used. Um, which is why, um, they think that the infection came. So fast forward, um, probably fast forward a year and a half. I'm now in high school. I, I basically didn't go to middle school my whole eighth grade year. Um, I'm now in high school and it is a complete culture shock. I went from being one of the smartest kids in my grade, like beta club, um, AP classes to now I'm dumbfounded and I'm lost. I don't know. I'm lost socially. I'm lost emotionally. I'm lost mentally. So as far as education goes, like that's kind of like the last thing on that list when you actually think about it. So I, um, education became way less important to me that year for sure. And, um, I just kind of became like rebellious towards it because like it wasn't working for me if that makes sense so like I was kind of if I'm being honest now that I'm out of it I can honestly say I was very angry um I was very angry at the education system I was very angry at my guidance counselor I was angry at my parents I was angry at myself my body I was angry at everything because nothing was going the way it was supposed to be going so um that whole year of fresh, that whole freshman year, um, my coaches didn't want me playing sports. They wanted me rehabbing, making sure I was okay to ever play a sport actually again. And the doctors had told me to never play football again, obviously. And um, that going into sophomore year, um, I um, started playing football again. Started basically, I had, I became what I thought at the time was the healthiest version of myself. I'm a sophomore. I'm maybe 5'9", I'm 180. I think that like, oh, this is like where I'm supposed to be. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. And I shortly after um, get diagnosed with Crohn's disease.
0: Can you explain what Crohn's disease is? I think a lot of people won't know what that is.
1: So... Crohn's disease is a anti. Um, I mean, Cro- Crohn's disease is an inflammatory bowel disease. I would I would describe it as to make it easy for people. Um, basically, you don't control when the pain comes. You don't control when you need to use the bathroom. It's very unpredictable. It's very much life altering. Because of those factors, um, you don't really get to choose when um, you're going to feel it. And there is no cure for it. And so there's only medications that can um, pretty much make it dormant and quiet. But there's no medicine that can remove it. And you are
0: 13 years old when you were diagnosed
1: with Crohn's? Yes, sir. I was 13 years old.
0: And as you said, so Crohn's disease is an inflammatory bowel disease that probably... Um, is the result of um, an abnormal function of your own immune system, such that the first part of your large intestine, the first part of the colon, and a lot of times um, the last part of the small intestine become um, very inflamed and can cause you know, terrible bowel symptoms, pain, bleeding, um, and it can be quite debilitating. It's a very, very serious health problem. And you're 13 years old now, and you were diagnosed because you started having a lot of abdominal symptoms and and bowel complaints. So
1: actually, um, I would usually never share this, but because of what you were specifically, what I met you under um, with the pelvic floor and how much you've taught me already, um, I'll I'll say this, but um, I was actually at school, I had a game that day. And I just needed to use the bathroom really bad. And luckily, I was in my coach's class, and uh, he let me go. And I didn't come back for about 40 minutes. And uh, he, like, sent somebody to check on me, and I'm just, like, in the stall crying. And I'm, like, on the phone with my mom, and I'm scared because what just happened had never happened to me before. And, like, instead of a bowel movement, it was just blood. So I'm 13 years old. At school, so I'm I'm calling my mom. I'm freaking out. I don't know what this is. I don't know what to do. I don't know who to tell at school. I don't think a, a school nurse can help me with this problem. So I don't really know exactly where to go from here. And I have a game later this day. So um, my mom, she um she leaves work. She comes to get me from school, and uh, she takes me to Vanderbilt. She doesn't take me. And that is also something that I want to kind of highlight before I tell the rest of my story is if you notice every time that I really needed help or really needed um, medical uh, assistance, I was always going an hour away instead of going to a hospital that was probably five minutes away or 10 minutes away down the street because the the healthcare in Bowling Green, Kentucky is not nearly as advanced as the health care in, say, Louisville, Kentucky or Lexington, Kentucky or Nashville, Tennessee. And it just so happens that Nashville is closer to me than Louisville or Lexington, Kentucky. So and Vanderbilt is one of the best hospitals in all of America. So um, I originally started going there under the Children's Hospital. And I was a patient until I was twenty-one years old with the children's hospital. During this time, I had um, one doctor. Um, well, I had two doctors. I had a spinal surgeon, and then I had a rheumatologist. But I never had um, like a GI doctor. I never had, which is which. Now I know, like, I mean, don't get me wrong. A rheumatologist definitely like can help me, but I never had the doctors that maybe I I needed. Um, so I had one doctor who was basically treating everything that I was diagnosed with. So I became, um, Crohn's disease is an autoimmune disease also. So I became, I got diagnosed with Crohn's disease. Then I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, and then I was diagnosed with uveitis. So all of those are autoimmune diseases. So he was basically treating everything that I had. Sorry, And, um. So we started, um, we started Remicade, um, when I was 14 and, um, I did that. I would go every four weeks and I would get, um, the infusion. It was a four and a half hour infusion and I go every four weeks. But, um, during this process, I began to, I mind you now I'm getting older. Um, I'm noticing more. I'm learning more, I'm absorbing more, and I'm getting these infusions at a, a children's cancer center. And um, I, meet, I meet friends, I meet kids, and then, like, the next four weeks when I come back from my appointment, like, they wouldn't be there anymore. And over time, like, you start to notice, like, oh, Gage isn't here. Oh, Gage is gone. And then, like, you ask your nurse, like, have you heard from Gage's parents, or is Gage um, not coming this week? And you find out that the friend you just met four weeks ago has passed away from his illness. And so it's honestly very discouraging, especially for a child to to constantly see that. So for three and a half years, I was on this um, infusion. And... Um, I'm just meeting like i'm meeting amazing kids but like their life's being cut short and I didn't realize like how much that was doing to me mentally until I got a little bit older um but um at 14 15 16 yeah at 16 and a half or maybe even 17. Um, my body built up antibodies to this medication. So from 14 to 16 and a half based two and a half years, my Crohn's was um, (laughs) under control. Like um, it was I was doing really well. Um, I had changed my diet up a little bit. I was still eating like fried foods. I was still eating dairy. Like these are things I didn't know. And I'm mind you, I'm a kid. So like, I didn't have a doctor in my ear telling me you need to stop eating this. You need to stop eating this. You need to stop eating this. I just had doc- a doctor who was giving me medicine and and granted like that. His intention was to help me. So like, I'm not saying that like, you know, that was the worst thing in the world for him to do, but I am saying that there are better options. And, um, especially as, as a child, I don't think that, um, I don't now don't get me wrong like if you if you have something that like your body is literally fighting and the cells are not leaving, then maybe you need a medicine but there are a lot of ways other than that to like you know counter these illnesses and this is what I learned a little bit le- later in life. Um, however, I had this doctor from I had this doctor from 12 year, from 12 years old. 13 years old until I was 21 years old. So 11 years, 10 years, I had this doctor. Um, and I'd always get diagnosed with like something little, but it'd be new. Every year I'd be getting put on a new medication. Every year that I was with him, I got put on a new medication. And then like once, that, once the remin case stopped working, he went to basically try and, every Crohn's medicine on me that he could. And I was having some, 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 um, some of the medicines were like giving me a very bad reaction to where I'd have to be hospitalized. Um, I was having allergic reactions, skin reactions. Um, I honestly like, you know, uveitis is an autoimmune disease. So like, I can't blame it on medication, but I just, I just know that after um, an allergic reaction I had um, to one of the medications that he gave me, that's whenever the uveitis came in my eyes. So I don't know. I feel like if if we if if I sat down with somebody long enough and, and wrote all of this stuff down, we could probably add a lot of it up because but nobody you know, suggested um, that
0: you had a disease called Behçet's disease.
1: Never. Okay. And I never heard about fibromyalgia until I was 23. Mm-hmm. But that is way, way down the line. So I have this same doctor for 11 years. Um, I'm taking the medicine he's giving me. He's give, Now I'm um, at, I'm 17, I'm 18 now because um, from the time that I, the medicine stopped working, it took him about seven months to get me on a new medication. Um, I had turned, um, 18 by then. So now I'm technically an adult and, um, he put me on Humira and I was giving myself the shot at home once a week, but this Humira was not helping me. It was only hurting me. And, um, I kept telling him that, and it was kind of more so like, well, you're an adult now. Like I don't I don't know. The energy was just, just very weird about it. And um so like I went from seeing him every two to three weeks to seeing him maybe every six weeks, every eight weeks. And um it was kinda like once I turned eighteen, he was less um he was less into my case, um, is the simplest way to put it. So from 18 to 21, from 18 to 20, actually, um, I am not doing well at all, but this is like my real life. Like high school is over. Um, I have a job. I have a full-time job, um, with um, a food service. I'm making really good money, but I'm, I'm 18 years old. I'm making about I think $25 an hour and education is no longer important to me. Honestly, health is not that important to me because if health really was that important to me, I wouldn't be working 12 hour shifts knowing that my body can't take it. So I have to like now realize that like I wasn't putting my health or myself first back then. It was like as an 18 year old, I was just thinking like, okay, I'm an adult now. I'm a man now. I have to make money now. And, and that was what I was trying to do. So, um, the medicine wasn't working. I was changing my diet though. Um, I was, I had completely cut out dairy. I had completely cut out fried food. I had completely cut out certain oils. Um, but I still was, um, not the most educated on this. This is just like I'm watching videos here and there. Um, I find out um, the name Doctor Sebi. I um, so I'm like I'm eight, so, but mind you, I'm 18 years old. So like I care about this stuff a lot, but at the same time, I'm still young. I'm still wanting to live. I'm working 12 hour shifts, so it's like if you can find time to you know, do all of that and do and then learn all of this, then like good luck. But I I was, it was just like I wasn't necessarily taking heed to it as quick as possible like I should have been. And um so once I cut out the dairy and I cut out the fried food and I um I started to see like a difference in like my bowel movement. And like I was able to control it more. I was able to okay. Now I can go to work and I know I'm not going to get sick. I know that this isn't going to happen, but I'm still throwing up every single day, every single day. I'm throwing up at some point in the day and I'm telling my doctor this for probably two years. I'm telling him like, I'm throwing up every day. And he's just like telling me like, I mean, that's kind of normal with Crohn's disease or. Or me having diarrhea, that's kind of normal with Crohn's disease, you know, like it was always very easy to swipe whatever it was under the rug because of the diseases that I had. Like, of course you're in pain. You have rheumatoid arthritis, you have spine surgeries. your joints are not good. Um, during all of this, though, like during all of the spine surgeries, I'm having um, a steroid injection in my knee probably every four to five months. In each knee, I'm having a a steroid injection. I'm having my knees drained. I'm having my elbows drained. I'm having my feet drained because I have so much fluid and inflammation on all of my joints. And I'm a kid, so I'm not, I'm very active. So, like, nothing is stopping me even though I'm in pain because I'm not going to stop living. Like, I've been in pain since 12 years old now, 11 years old. So, like, this isn't going to stop my life. So I'm working and, um, I'm 18 and, uh, one day I get really sick at work. I get really sick at work and I, I finish out the shift, but then like the next day I was too sick to go in and, um, I ended up, my mom ended up taking me to Vanderbilt. And, um, that's where they, um, they basically told me that the medicine wasn't working and it was, um, my, I had, um, it was basically weakening my liver. That's all it was doing. It wasn't helping me though at all, but it was definitely making my liver worse. So they completely took me off of this medicine and now I'm, I'm on nothing. So I'm 18, 19, um, and I'm on nothing. So from 19 to 20, I was on no medication, but I had actually adopted the Dr. Chevy lifestyle. Like I had actually, um, started taking this holistic stuff a lot more serious in that year. Um, that's the year that I actually got the book, the Dr. Chevy book. So I got to read that. I got to cut out things that weren't good for me, put things in my diet that were good for me. So I was definitely seeing an improvement and, um, one day, I just had this really, really bad Crohn's flare-up. And um, I, like, texted my mom about it. And at the time, I'm living by myself, though, but I texted my mom about it. And uh, because this is this, it's so funny, but this is finally a, a point in my life if, where I feel as though, oh my God, like I'm going to get to have a life, like my peers, like it is going to be okay. I am going to get to live. Like I'm not going to live the rest of my life sick. I'm not going to live the rest of my life, not knowing if I'm going to make it into work or this or that. So I'm actually kind of, I'm, I'm more positive about my life than I've been since probably 12 years old, 13 years old. So, um, And I'm convincing myself, I'm I'm constantly convincing myself that it's okay. Like I'm constantly telling myself that I like, like, you know, like sports weren't sports is not what you were supposed to be doing. Like your purpose is much larger. Like you, I'm telling myself all these things I'm keeping myself going. And I go to the hospital with this Crohn's flare up and I can't urinate and I can't like, Um, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't have a bowel movement and I can't urinate, but the doctor is like, he does a CT scan on my stomach and he's like, I, I can't really see anything. I think you're just having a really bad flare up. I'm going to give you some pain medicine. Um, and if it gets too worse, I guess come back. But, but mind you, I'm only going to the hospital in Bowling Green because now for a year, I've been relatively okay. So my mom doesn't feel as um, obligated to rush me to, to Vanderbilt as she as when I was a child. So um, I'm just in a Bowling Green emergency room. Well, they send me home with pain medicine that first day. The next day, I go back to the hospital, and I'm complaining of the same thing, but it's worse now. And it was almost like there was something else. It was, I, I'm going to call it God, but um, it was almost like a sign because they they were they were basically just trying to convince me and my parents that I was okay and I was just like basically like um, milking it. Like I was just milking it. And, and when, when you I say first milking, into the-
0: were they thinking you were drug seeking, that you were just trying to get?
1: Yes, now and I didn't even realize that until I t- I spoke with you. But um, now I realize like they were more so concerned about like well, yeah, like does he like more so like I was in there trying to get something out of them than like trying to help myself. Like, but like I I don't know. It, it's actually a really scary thing because um. If they would have just looked at my medical history, the, all the proof was there. But the fact of the matter is they didn't look at my medical history. So um, I'm telling them about my medical history, but like they're not putting all of these things together. And maybe it's just like the the maybe they're uninformed. Like I said, they're they're medical system is nowhere near um, like anywhere around here. So maybe they're just uninformed. However, when I get in the ER this second day, I have to urinate so bad. Like I'm like, I have to, and they were trying to get a urine sample for me the day before. So like, I'm like, oh, this is perfect. I need to urinate. Well, when I go to urinate, it's just blood. And so I automatically, I'm scared. Like I, I'm I'm scared. I'm, I'm worked up now and Obviously, like if I'm already in excruciating pain, the last thing I probably need to be is worked up. But now I'm worked up. They're not giving me pain medicine at the hospital because like they're telling me, well, we don't want to give you anything um, and like make something worse. They're not. So they're like, it's so weird. So like he sends me home again, but this time he prescribes me. um, He prescribes me Percocets and I'm not big on pain medicine at all like because like I I've been sick since I was a child I've been in a lot of pain since I was a kid so I never wanted to become a zombie um and that was always a fear for me because like I knew I was depressed by by the time I was 13 14 years old and I was going through everything I was going through I had missed a whole year of school I had missed a whole year of hanging out with my peers I knew I wasn't mentally okay but I didn't want to get on antidepressants because I didn't want to become a zombie. And like now that I'm older, I'm more educated, I'm matured, I completely understand that on a whole other level. But that is what we were being told back then, especially as not just a minority, but a black man, like a black kid. Like my parents didn't believe that I was like mentally unwell or mentally unstable until 2021. And I've been dealing with this stuff since since 2011. So it took a lot of years for my parents to even accept that mental illness was actually even a thing. And that's like a very big part of my story, because like. I had the doctors thinking that I was like crying wolf. And then on the other end, it was like my parents thought I was crying wolf to my mental health like the physical health is what the doctors thought I was crying with too. But my parents believed that part. Cause my parents know I don't complain. So like, but when it came to the mental health, it was like, they didn't, re- and I'm not going to say they didn't believe that I was going through it, but they had no clue on how to deal with it or what to do about it. And now that I'm older, I can see that they were just as confused as me and they were just as hurt and lost as me. Um, either way, he gives me Percocets, and um, I come home that I come home that night, and then that whole night I sleep. I try to sleep. Then that next day I wake up, and I am in excruciating pain. Like I know I need to go to the hospital, but like not our hospital at this point. Like I know I need to go to Vanderbilt. And mind you, at the time I'm still technically um, a children's hospital patient. I still have never been to the adult hospital at Vanderbilt. I'm, I'm, I'm a child's patient. So, um, that became a really big confusion whenever all of this hit the fan, because, um, I take this, I take this Percocet. Cause I'm, I'm in so much pain. I'm like, I gotta do something. So like I take, I take this medicine and I don't want to be too graphic, but, um, when I take this medicine it like directly, it's like, I have no stomach. <laughs> like basically it's like the medicine doesn't go anywhere besides like to my testicle. And I jump up out of bed, I run to the bathroom and I start puking and I like, I remember kind of seeing it, but then I just blacked out. And I woke up um, in ICU at, at the hospital from my bathroom. So I don't know what is happening in between those two things. And then the doctor comes in and he explains to me that, um, I have a perforation in my uh, colon and my intestine. He explains to me that, um, I had, uh, been puking up my bowels and that's why I look so charcoaly, And, um, he explains to me that there is nothing that they can do at this specific hospital because there is no surgeon that can perform the surgery. So they have to get me to Vanderbilt, but Vanderbilt doesn't have a bed for me. Um, and this is where the child's hosp- children's hospital adult hospital thing really becomes a thing that almost takes my life because of, um, Instead of them contacting my doctor, who was still my doctor, and like getting me to the children's hospital or the adult hospital, whichever hospital they could get me to, they were only trying to get me to an adult hospital that I had no basically no record at. So I don't have a doctor here yet. I don't have a surgeon here. I don't have anything here. But if you just call the children's hospital, I have everything there. So... But, I mean, granted, I was an adult, so, like, I get I get that part, but this is life or death at this point. Like, you just told me I have a preparation. Um, so, um, about four hours go by, five hours go by, and um, they have me in ICU. I'm on I, uh, IV pain medicine, and they send um, two surgeons in to speak to me, and they basically explained to me what's going to happen when I get to Vanderbilt, but I'm still not understanding it because I'm young. Like, I don't, I don't know what all these terms mean. So, um, but they're, t- but they're like letting me know that they're, that they can't do the surgery in Bowling Green. And um, so that was five hours into me being in the hospital, probably for, a, I woke up, two hours into being in the hospital. So that's probably seven hours already. And the time starts to become a thing because they told me I'm septic. So now it's, we're battling time. And so I'm sitting in Vanderbilt's, I mean, I'm sitting in Bowling Green, um, Greenview hospital. I'm sitting in their ICU for over 18 hours before they put me in an ambulance And drive me to Vanderbilt, which is an hour away. And so, by this time, like, people will never understand. And it it took me meeting um, uh, doctors who, like like yourself, it took me meeting. I had a chiropractor. And he was just going through my file one day. And he was just like, man, you are blessed. He was like to see you standing here and like to be in like the condition and shape that you're in, like Marcus, do you know that some people get these injuries and never walk again? So he's just like telling me like, he's, so he asked me, he's like, how did you push through all of this? And I'm like telling him, like, as far as I know, like my faith, God, and he's like, it's the God in you because there's a superpower. He was like, Anybody who can push through sepsis, that's, that's bigger than, than you. And like, at that point, your mind is entering a different space and entering a different place to, that allows you to stay alive, that allows you to keep fighting, that allows you to keep telling yourself that you are going to make it because most people don't. And that is the reality. And I never realized it while I was going through it, but, this was months after a year, years after when I met that doctor, um, uh, or a year, not well months after. Um, but I'm septic and, um, uh, I'm just like angry. I'm so angry. Like I'm getting more mad as I'm sitting in this ICU room and I'm the only one who is like fighting for my life, like physically, um, vo- verbally, um, I'm the only one who's fighting for my life. My parents, they don't understand what my body's actually going through because they don't feel it. They just see it. And if they see me responding with energy and aggression, then I can't be that sick. That's what they think at least. But, um, I've recently learned this at the convention that we were, um, we were at, um, together. Men usually get two emotions. And that's either pissed off or fine. And we don't realize it, but we use our anger as energy. We use our anger to power us. And that's what I was doing. And that's what I became as a whole person, which becomes a very, very toxic and ugly thing. But in that moment, that's what I needed to stay alive. So I'm using my anger to power me through this, I don't feel nothing. I don't see nothing. I all I know is y'all better help me. Like, like that's all I'm thinking. So the ambulance finally um, get there, and um, <laughs> thank God for this guy. But the ambulance, he um, they tell him what's going on. He reads a little bit of my chart, and he says, "Why was he not life slided hours ago?" And that's when my parents kind of seem like, oh, like, he's not just overreacting. Like, he's actually hurting. He's sick. Like, regardless of how I'm reacting, if I'm, like, saying, if if I'm telling y'all I'm in this much pain, I probably am. So that's when my parents finally were able to believe what I was saying um, a little bit. So we get to Vanderbilt, and um, the way that the communication in the medical world works is like, they hadn't, it's not like they had sent a bunch of videos or files or like my imaging over from Greenview to Vanderbilt. They sent it with me on a CD on a physical CD. So Vanderbilt literally only had a very, very brief um, summary of what I, what was actually going on with me. It was just like Crohn's flare up bowel preparation. And but they didn't know exactly how long I had been going through this. They didn't know how much pain I was in. They didn't know any of this. So when I get to Vanderbilt, they put me in ICU. And this story, like, um, I I don't know what everybody believes in. I don't know if you believe in the universe. I don't know if you believe in yourself. I don't know if you believe that there's something higher than you. But if I didn't believe there was something higher than me, in this moment, I began to believe it because um, a young black man walks in the room, a young black doctor, he's maybe well, at the time to me he looks like he's about 25 26, (laughs) I'm like this doesn't make sense, like he's not supposed to be here Um, and he walks in and he touches the left side of my stomach and it's like completely like, it's expanded my like large intestine is just like poking out literally and um he looks at my mom he looks at me and he says he has to have a he has to have a colostomy bag right now and if we don't get him the surgery in the next 20 minutes he may not make it and he was the first person that was ever honest with me my mom my family so he um he's just like a he's just under a doctor though he's not like a the doctor or the surgeon yet, but this guy, like, wasn't going to let me go, so he decides to, like, make the call, and he decides that, like, I have to get on an operation table right now, so he, like, basically goes, like, above his, uh, the doctor that he was under, and um, he, within 15 minutes they were wheeling me down to the operation table within 45 minutes. I was being medicated and being put to sleep to have surgery. So I can honestly say that this man like walked in and decided that like, we're not losing him today. Like, so. I don't really like telling this part of the story, but, um, he comes in my room probably like, five days later after the surgery and he just, we and him are talking for a while. And he tells me that he put on my chart that I was a white male. And he said, I truly believe that that is what saved you that day. And that was so hard for me to hear and process at the, that time. And I don't even know if he realized how much I was going through mentally, because when you first, when you first get a colostomy bag, you're going to wake up and you're going to be on ketamine. So you don't really care what your body's going through. And like, you know, this is like, and I get it. Like, I get it. Like, you don't want you know that patient to go in complete shock. You don't want that person to freak out. So I get it, but for me personally, I did. I wasn't. I, I wasn't a fan of that. So I I asked them to take me off the ketamine after the first day, which they did, and um, I was up walking that second day. I was doing laps around the ICU. They kept me in ICU for two more days and then like it looked as if i was doing better i was getting better my stomach was still very extended though but i didn't know what any of, i didn't know what any of that means like because i if i'm being honest i didn't know i had the philosophy bag until like the fourth day mm. whenever like the medicine finally started to wear off and i'm like oh my god I have a colostomy bag and like, you know, you don't really have to worry about it at first because it's not working. So like I wasn't having to empty it or change it or anything like that at first. So it was just more so bleeding, but I, I wasn't even really aware that I had it until about the fourth day. What well, a sixth day is when they moved me from the ICU to a regular room.
0: And just to be specific, the kind of, Ostomy you had was an ileostomy, Iliostomy. which is Iliostomy, very yes, different sir. than a colostomy because an ileostomy always just, um, is a very like that high, high volume, most know. right? High volume, yes, much more difficult to manage. Marcus, I want us to take a break. Is that okay with you? Yes, sir. Okay. I want us, this, this is so much and it's so intense. Um, I just want us to uh, take a break and then I want us to record part two. Um, And um, so I'm going to wrap this up as the ending of part one. Um, And before I do, I'm going to just let you know again how grateful I am for you. Um,
1: Thank you again also for allowing me to share my story. This
0: is a lot. And um, so we're going to take a little break, and we'll see you all for part two. Thank you.